Okay, so I'm just going to read from Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. Just again working our way through this fantastic book of Ephesians, and this is another high point in the book. And having shared all that he has so far, Paul says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Thank God for his word. Let's just come and pray. Father, what an incredible prayer that is. And Father, we know that that prayer is a prayer that just keeps on re reverberating down through the centuries. And that, that prayer is still the prayer that you would have your people just laid upon their hearts. That you want us to pray for one another. To pray that we'll grasp something of your purposes that will go deeper in you. And particularly we'll go deeper in our love for one another. Lord, speak to us tonight. And lead us to that life that pleases you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me just uh, attempt to introduce tonight to open up for you one of the most wonderful prayers in the New Testament by sharing with you some insights on prayer by one of the, the best-known Bible teachers of the 20th century and then from the best-known Bible teacher of the 19th century. So first, this is what Martin Lloyd-Jones has to say about prayer. Ultimately, there is no better index of one's spiritual state and condition than one's prayers. Then he adds, everything we do in the Christian life is easier than prayer. Then from the 19th century, Spurgeon, he said, neglect of private prayer is the locust which devours the strength of the church. And then, Prayer meetings are the throbbing machinery of the church. Now put all that together and what's it saying? Well, I would say that in the spiritual life, there is nothing more important than prayer. Nothing more important than taking time to be with God, both personally and in the company of his people. And while at times there are valid reasons for a short period perhaps, for not praying, for not gathering together to pray. Yet in my experience, 99% of the time when we don't pray, and this certainly applies to me, we have no valid reasons, just excuses of varying degrees of feebleness. Excuses that too often are rooted there in our sinful self-centeredness. 
that the powers of evil manipulate to keep God's people away from doing that which these powers fear most. The release of God's power by prayer. When God's people then neglect to pray, this leads to our spiritual impoverishment, this leads to heartbreak for God, and it leads to delight for the powers of evil. But you know, this is an accusation that could never be laid at the feet of Paul. For prayer was Paul's heartbeat. It was as natural for him as drawing breath. And here in this passage in Ephesians, we come face to face with most, one of the most incredible prayers in the whole New Testament. But before we try to better understand and open up this prayer, let me first just set it again into a little bit of context. So in this prayer then, from verse 14, Paul picks up here, from where he'd left off in verse 1. That's made clear by his repetition in verse 1 and, and verse 14 by the phrase, for this reason. So what this then tells us is that what this prayer relates to is what Paul has shared with the Ephesians prior to chapter 3, and particularly what he shared in chapter 2. And that is God's great purpose in Christ. To form one new united people. To form the church of Jesus Christ out of one's bitterly divided people. And to deal with every possible source of division in order to achieve this. Now at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul began in verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. And he was obviously there about to move into prayer to pray that God might work in the hearts of his people to really bring them something of a greater sense of his grace and love and power and then enable them to live in the kind of unity which is his aim and his heart's desire for his people. But then this mention of himself, this mention of his own personal circumstances, this causes Paul to digress. It leads him for a little while to share something of the part that God had called him in particular to share in this great purpose and to open a little bit more about what this involves. But now you see here in verse 14, Paul in a sense gets back to where he started from. He gets back to prayer, back to this incredible prayer. And I want to try and lead you through this prayer by focusing on three key words, with the first of these being position. Position. Verse 14 and 15. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom the whole family on earth derives its name. Um, and what we need to, to begin by, by taking note of under this heading is First, the, the physical position that Paul describes himself here being moved to in prayer is here he can, considers this great purpose of God. I bow the knee. For you see, while the Bible doesn't lay down any strict, hard and fast rules about the physical posture that God wants his people to adopt as they pray, kneeling, standing, sitting, walking, even lying down, etc., they're all found in the Bible, though as William Hendrickson says, and I would have to agree, he says the slouching position where one is supposed to be praying is an abomination to the Lord. But you see, 
kneeling in prayer in the Bible is in comparison, it is relatively rare. And a guy by the name of Horner, I've mentioned a number of times, he suggests that, that we actually find this only four times in the New Testament. And that what it indicates when it's used properly and when it's a true expression of where our heart really is, what it indicates then is a deep earnestness in prayer. And here you say, I've got, I've got no doubt that in large part, this is born out of the fact that Paul, as he reflects here, he's simply overwhelmed by the greatness of God, by the greatness of his love and his grace and power revealed to us in his purpose for his people, for his church. But I believe there's something just a little more even than this going on here. Because the phrase, I kneel before the Father, which more accurately, for example, in the English Standard Version is translated, I bow my knees before the Father. But these words echo a famous Old Testament verse, Isaiah 45, 23. We're there in that verse, the Lord says there, to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Words which are Again, also re-echoed elsewhere in the New Testament, used in a slightly different way in, in Philippians 2.10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. But what's most significant here is that the context of these words, when they were originally stated first by Isaiah, was that they were an invitation from the Lord to all the ends of the earth to turn to the Lord and be saved. So you see, what Paul's rejoicing in here in Ephesians, what leads him into this prayer here, is that this is what God has now done in Jesus Christ. That God's promise has now become reality in the church. That God has saved men and women, young people from the ends of the earth, that he's made one of every tribe and race and colour and nation and creed, the things that once perhaps divided us, things that maybe continue to divide people in the world around us, that these things are now rendered as meaningless and certainly should be meaningless in the light of the fact that we now have Jesus in common. That we are now brothers and sisters. That we are now one family united in Christ and his love. And of course in the application of this in, in Philippians. Paul there is looking forward to the fulfillment of this. He's looking forward to that time when at the return of Jesus. The eyes of every man and every woman will be opened up to see what God has done in Christ. To see the salvation that he's brought. To see the people that he's established through faith in him. For then, either willingly or unwillingly, every knee will bow to him. But here, here in Ephesians, as Paul thinks of what God has done, as he thinks of what God will do in Christ, and particularly here, as he focuses on what God has done and intends to do by bringing the church into being. Well, Paul can do nothing else but fall on his knees before the Father in adoration, in thanksgiving, in prayer. And what it says here about the Father, 
really serves to underline this. You know what he says? For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. You see, what's actually said here in the original is it's quite difficult to translate into English. Because this could quite legitimately, linguistically be translated every family. Meaning the Father from whom every family in in heaven and on earth derives its name. But you see, the NIV translation that I read earlier is equally legitimate, but it also really fits so much better into the context of what Paul is saying. You know, from whom the whole family, the whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Because what this is saying is totally consistent with Paul's main focus, as we've said, in Ephesians at this point, that that which is driving Paul here to pray, that when we become Christians, we become part of a new family, a new united people of God, the church. We're part of his family, his family, not just on earth. But listen, we're also part of the family of heaven. Think about it. Even the angels in heaven in Christ are our brothers and sisters. But under this heading of position, there's one other thing that I I want to draw out from this prayer and, and try and make clear to you. And that is that in all that Paul has said so far in this letter to the Ephesians, all that he said about, about God's church being one people, one family, united in Christ by his grace and power, and all that he said about all the things that divide us becoming as nothing in comparison to the faith in him that unites us, all this is actually about our position in Christ. That is, this is how God sees us in Christ. This is what we should be. This is what in heaven we will be. However, Paul's concern here, as he prays, is that we be this here and now in our experience. He is praying that we will live out here and now what we are in Christ. So Paul prays here that God will work in us. He prays that he will provide for us. He will give us all that we need in order that we may be able to deal with and to resist all the influences of the world and society around us and our own weak, sinful, self-centered nature that will incline us, if we're not alert to these things, if we don't resist them, that will incline us to allow again things that should have no place among God's people to break down our unity in Christ, to bring division into the church where that division has no place. Now this happens in so many trivial, inconsequential and yet shameful ways in the church in this country. But I I had a notable example of this once during one of my trips to India a number of years ago. Because you see, there is a small but a long-established, largely traditional church in India. Been there for a long time. And most of the people and families in these churches, because of the impact on the Christian faith, the Christian faith on their lives over the years, these families are now middle class. They're fairly well-to-do and very respectable. But you see, in recent years, over the last 10 or 20 years, 
there's been a, a remarkable turn into Jesus Christ among the Dalits of India, among the untouchables, among people who Hinduism views as being one rung below the lowest rung on the ladder. But you see, when those Dalits were converted, some of them went along to these traditional middle-class Indian churches. It was made very clear to them that they were not wanted. You see, the Indian Christians, influenced by a Hindu, ungodly worldview, did not want anything to do with these low-caste Dalits who, in fact, by faith, were now their brothers and sisters in Christ. I, mean, as I thought about this, something pretty similar actually happened uh, in the UK in the mid-20th century when there was significant West Indian immigration, particularly down in the, the south of England. And many of these West Indian Christians, when they arrived, the first thing they did was they went along to British churches. And far too often, they received the opposite of a warm welcome. So you see, British Christians allowed this world's racial prejudice, something that has no place in the Church of Christ, to divide them from these West Indian brothers and sisters in Jesus. And that's shameful. It is unchristian. It's a denial of the gospel, a denial of the power of the gospel. It's a denial of the unity that is fundamental to our faith. It's a denial of all that the church is called to be. And you know, the funny thing is, many of those churches that turned those West Indian Christians away, I think are now closed, while there are vibrant Afro-Caribbean churches all around the United Kingdom. So some good then has come from this, but it is a tragedy and it should never have happened. And you see here, this is Paul's heart's desire that this kind of tragedy wouldn't happen. That's why he prays as he does here. So let's move on then to the core of his prayer. Remembering as we do so that this prayer is also for us. Paul prays this prayer for us and he also calls us to pray. Perhaps not the exact words, but certainly the principles of this prayer for one another. We'll move on then from position to petition. Verse 16 and on into verse 17 where he says, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you through, with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, in one sense, at a surface level, this might seem as well really quite straightforward. That Paul is asking the Father, out of his limitless resources, his glorious riches, to come into the lives, to come into the hearts, to the inner being of his people, to come and to dwell in our hearts. And so enable us then to live together in the kind of unity which is his heart's desire for us. The kind of unity that man in his natural strength by his own resources struggles to attain to and can never maintain for long. But then you see, when you consider this and think about it a bit more, well, isn't this what happens when we become Christian? I mean, doesn't God, as we put our faith in Jesus Christ, then doesn't he, in the power of the Holy Spirit, come then into our lives, come then into our hearts, doesn't Christ then at that moment come to dwell in our hearts through faith? Of course he does. So why then 
Is Paul praying for this here? Why is he praying this for the Ephesians who are already Christians? Well, I believe the key to understanding what Paul's actually praying for here lies in the word that he uses that is translated into English as dwell. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. For you see, there are two different Greek words that could equally be translated in the same way. And one of these words has the idea of taking up lodgings. It's about a stranger passing through and and looking for somewhere to stay for a night. And it's something temporary, something transient. So there's that word. The other word, though, has the idea of settling down. It's got the idea of taking up permanent residence, of we might say putting your roots down. And it's the second word that Paul chooses to use here. So what Paul here is praying for then is a deep work of God, right at the very core of a believer's life, a deep work. As one writer I looked at put it, he's praying that Christ may be at home in. That is at the very centre of or deeply rooted in believers' lives. Christ must become the controlling factor in attitudes and conduct. You see, this is what Paul is praying for. This is the kind of ongoing experience of God that we need as believers if we're to resist the influences of this world, if we're to resist the pull of our own weak, selfish, sinful human nature, if we're to resist these things and to live out our unity in Christ. Instead of allowing things that are insignificant in comparison to divide us. So, you know, just think about this. What does it tell us then? When Christians fall out with one another and hold grudges against one another. What does it tell us when churches are divided, when churches split? Not over crucial areas of doctrine or of holiness of life, but over when you really look at them relatively insignificant things. What does that tell us? Surely it tells us that Christ is not in control at the heart. He's not in control at the core in the way that he should be. That a deep and powerful work of the Spirit is not going on in that individual or in that church in the way that God would want. That that person might be a Christian And that group of people might be a church, but they are not spiritually mature. However, God has more for them. And Paul prays for more for them and for us. And so too should we pray for more. Let's look at one final key word just to help open up this prayer, just to help us understand it a little bit better. The final key word is purpose. What is the purpose of this prayer? What does Paul want it to lead to? What does he want it to achieve in us that we may be able to live together in unity? Well, here's what he says from the second half of verse 17. And I pray that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp 
how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So first then, Paul wants us to grasp, to understand. He wants us to comprehend God's love. The greatness of his love. So that we might then be able better to have a deep love for one another. And John Stott says here of this description of Christ's love. He says that the love of Christ is broad enough to encompass all mankind. Long enough to last for all eternity. Deep enough to reach even the most degraded sinner. And high enough to exalt him to heaven. What Paul prays then is that we, that God's people, that we might understand better the greatness of this love, of his love for us. Though as he makes clear, we'll never understand it fully. This love that surpasses knowledge. For how can we as human beings with all our limitations ever hope to fully come to terms, to grasp that which is infinite and divine. Paul prays them that we may understand this love better. For as we understand this, as we understand the nature of his love, as we understand how much he loves us and has forgiven us with all our weaknesses, all our failings, all our shortcomings, then understanding this and filled with his love and power then how much easier it will then be for us to love one another and to live in unity. But then Paul's prayer goes on from this. To know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. Now there are one or two different options, but but most naturally what Paul's speaking of here when he speaks of the, the fullness of God is God's perfection God's perfection of course in human terms God's perfection was seen ultimately in this world in Christ and where we will see in no perfection will of course be in heaven but what Paul it seems is saying here what it seems Paul is praying here is that this is the way the way that he's outlined by which now we can grow and progress towards that perfection that one day in heaven will be ours in Christ. This is the way, as by obedience, by his power, we seek to love one another more and so are able to live together in unity. You see, this is the way God wants his people to journey towards heaven. And this is the way Paul prays us into here. And all this finishes in verse 20 and 21 in one of the great benedictions, one of the great prayers for blessing in the New Testament. Just fantastic, (laughs) unbelievable words. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You know, when I, I read that, I was preparing, I thought, you know, Paul... You really knew how to finish. You knew how to finish. But for me, two things stand out in this ending to Paul's great prayer. God's power and God's glory. 
But it's only by God's power that we'll be able to live like this as a truly loving, united people. And that as we do so, we bring God glory. For in a broken, fragmented, divided, warring world, how a loving, united people of God stand out. And tonight I say, may we hear by God's power, may we be that kind of people. And may we bring him glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's come and pray. Father, we just want to thank you for just the sheer dimensions of that prayer of Paul. That he didn't pray for little things for his people. He didn't have little prayer, prayers so often about the, the details of their life. What he wanted was the big things in their life. He wanted us to get love at the heart of all that we are. He wanted us to be concerned for your glory and to seek your glory in every situation that we're in. He wanted us to be focused on you and looking towards heaven and living that life out in the here and now, controlled by Jesus, with Jesus living and reigning, dwelling in our hearts. Jesus at the center of all that we do, all that we are. Lord, may we be that people for the glory of your name in this place. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.